Father, we pray that you would be with us by means of your Spirit, especially during this time together, that you would illumine us to read the Scriptures aright, and we pray that we might read them in a way that honors you and, and allows for a charitable interaction as your people. We pray, Father, that you might give us patience and tolerance toward each other as we struggle through a difficult question like that of the millennium. We ask, Father, that you might edify us through our discussion and time together, that this wouldn't simply be a matter for curiosity or for drawing charts, but rather would be a matter that strengthens our lives and gives us hope and confidence in the power of our Lord Jesus Christ to accomplish all that his word promises. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the question of the millennium is before us, and I think it would be good to begin with uh, just a brief rehearsal of what the three basic millennial positions have to say. Uh, as most of you will know, there is a premillennial position, an amillennial position, and a postmillennial position, the last of which is my own conviction with respect to the biblical teaching on uh, the millennium. The word millennium uh, comes from the Latin, it means 1,000, and it's based upon the passage in Revelation, the 20th chapter, the first six verses, where we read of Jesus Christ binding Satan for a thousand years and the saints of God reigning with Christ for a thousand years. Uh, the question has been raised uh, throughout the history of the church, is the return of Christ going to be premillennial? That is, will it be before this 1,000-year reign of Jesus Christ? Or will it be postmillennial? That is, will the return of Christ be after the 1,000-year reign of Jesus Christ? Then, of course, there are other questions as well. Is the 1,000 years to be construed literally or symbolically, figuratively? And what is the character of this period that is uh, spoken of as the 1,000-year reign of Jesus Christ. The premillennial position has maintained for the most part that Christ will return prior to the millennium and that he will establish an earthly kingdom, that this earthly kingdom will be characterized by military might, that he will subdue the rebellious nations of the earth, and they will be his subjects for a thousand literal years, at the end of which time those nations will be deceived again by Satan. Satan will be loosed from his chains. He will go about gathering together the nations to the war of Gog and Magog, where there will be one final battle between the forces of good and the forces of evil. The people of God will have been bound up in Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem, the physical, literal, historical city of Jerusalem, and Jesus Christ with them at the point of utter defeat by the uh, forces of Gog and Magog, at which point God will interfere with fire from heaven and save his son as well as his son's people, and the day of last judgment will take place. The postmillennial position uh, to the opposite effect is not that Jesus will come to establish an earthly kingdom, but that Jesus has already come and established an earthly kingdom. That in his first advent, he came as the king. He was enthroned on high by God as a result of his uh, saving work. Uh, he is the king of kings and lord of lords. He has been exalted to God's right hand to reign 
over the earth. And that during this period of time, we see being fulfilled all the promises of gospel prosperity and earthly um, uh, success and earthly prosperity that God has given to his people through the years. That uh, slowly uh, but surely, the world nations are being converted by the uh, forces of the Great Commission. They are coming to know the Savior, Jesus Christ. They are being sanctified in the truth, and God is blessing these nations with the uh, various blessings that he has promised his people. So that in history, Christ is achieving a victory over Satan and the forces of evil. The all-millennial position, which is something of a latecomer historically, uh, is basically a post-millennial position. All millennialism says Jesus returns after the millennium, that Jesus comes after the church age, and the church age is the millennium, and therefore all millennialism is in fact post-millennial in its orientation. However, the all millennialist does disagree with the post-millennialist on the nature of the millennium itself. He does not believe that there is a period of time in which there will be evident, literal, earthly blessings, um, and among them, that there will be widespread conversions so that all the world nations will be converted, and that there will be cultural effects, that there, there will be socio-political economic results of that type of conversion. The amillennialist does not believe in that semi-golden age uh, that latter-day glory that the post-millennialist is confident the Bible promises us. That isn't to say the all-millennialist doesn't want that kind of period, and it's not to say that he necessarily dismisses the possibility of such a period of time. There are many all-millennialists who say it is possible that we may just see that if God, by his sovereign disposition, wills it. But we have no assurance in the Bible that that is so, that there is no prophetic promise that God will have violated if he does not bring about that period. The vast majority of all millennialists say, however, that really the period between the two advents of Jesus Christ is going to be characterized by a progressive growth of both good and evil. Both the forces of the gospel and the forces of unbelief will advance somewhat in parallel to the end of the age where there will be a final decline where uh, evil will finally have it over the good, well, the forces of evil will finally be uh, dominant, and then Jesus Christ will break in upon an unbelieving world in final judgment. So the differences between post-millennialism and amillennialism have to do with the nature of this period between the first advent and the second advent of Jesus Christ, whether we can confidently expect the success of the Great Commission where the world nations will be discipled and where progressively we'll see the effects of that in culture. Now, I would like to begin with a brief refutation of premillennialism this afternoon just so that we can shelve that. And then I'd like to talk about those things that all millennialism and postmillennialism have in common and then finally logically come to the issue that separates all mills and post mills and that being the character of this interadvental period and what we can confidently expect according to the promises of Scripture. So, first of all, against the premillennial position, if you turn to Revelation, the 20th chapter, where we read of the 1,000-year reign of Jesus Christ, 
after John describes for us uh, the reign of Christ, the binding of Satan, and the co-rule of the saints for a thousand years, and then finally the release of Satan and the battle of Gog and Magog, he says in verse 9, And they went up over the breadth of the earth, and compassed the camp of the saints about, and the beloved city, and fire came down out of heaven and devoured them. Okay, John tells us that the battle of Gog and Magog at the end of the age will be terminated by fire from heaven. Now, it's my own conviction that John is using this image of fire from heaven because it was a well-known image among uh, the early church, the apostolic church, for the second coming of Jesus Christ. And I think we find confirmation of that in 1 Thessalonians 1.7, where Paul says, so that... I better get this right now. Second Thessalonians, thank you. And to you that are afflicted, rest with us at the revelation of the Lord Jesus from heaven with the angels of his power in flaming fire. Okay, so Paul tells us that when Christ returns, it will be in flaming fire. That seems to be the flaming fire that John speaks of uh, figuratively in Revelation 20 when he says the battle of Gog and Magog will be terminated by fire from heaven. In 2 Peter 3, verse 10, the same image of fire is used for the termination of the present age and world. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief, in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the element shall be dissolved with fervent heat, and the earth and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Okay, so if I am right in identifying the fire from heaven uh, along with the fire of 2 Peter 3 and 2 Thessalonians 1, then John tells us in Revelation 20 that Christ will return subsequent to the millennium. Christ will return after the millennial reign of the saints, in which case we have to reject premillennialism and affirm some form of postmillennialism. As a second refutation of premillennialism, I can give you as a general proposition that we can prove in a number of ways from the Bible that there is no room, there is no gap between the various end-time events, that being the coming of Jesus Christ, the day of judgment, and the resurrection of the saints. There is no gap or room during this period of time for an insertion of a 1,000-year reign of Christ. And uh, let me give you just three of many ways we can see this. First, the proof that the Bible gives us a doctrine of the general resurrection. At the end of the age, we will not have a resurrection of the just, a thousand-year gap, and then a resurrection of the unjust, which is what the premillennialist teaches. Where we read in John, the fifth chapter, verses 24 to 29, that the resurrection of the just and the unjust will take place on one day. John 5, verse 24. Jesus says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that heareth my word, and believeth him that sent me, hath eternal life, and cometh not into judgment, but hath passed out of death into life. Verily, verily, I say unto you, The hour cometh, and now is, when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live. Jesus speaks of a resurrection experience, a spiritual resurrection experience here, where he says, all those who hear my word and believe it are raised from death to life spiritually. Then verse 28, 
Marvel not at this, however, for the hour comes in which all that are in the tomb shall hear his voice and shall come forth. They that have done good unto the resurrection of life and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of judgment. Jesus says, don't marvel simply at the spiritual resurrection because there's going to be a day on which all who are in the tombs will hear my voice. And on that day, the good and the evil will be raised together, some to judgment and some to blessing. And so, because the Bible teaches a general resurrection, there is no opportunity to insert a 1,000-year period for the millennium between the first resurrection of the just and the second resurrection of the unjust, as the premillennialist says. Secondly, the Bible teaches a general judgment. The Bible does not teach that, the, that those who are righteous will be judged on one day, that there will be a thousand-year gap, and then those who are evil, being raised at the end of that millennial period, will be judged finally. If you look at Matthew, the 25th chapter, verses 31 to 33, we can get some foundation in Scripture for this doctrine of a general judgment rather than two judgments or more. Matthew 25 at verse 31, But when the Son of Man shall come in his glory and all the angels with him, then shall he sit on the throne of his glory, and before him shall be gathered all the nations, and he shall separate them one from another, as the shepherd separateth the sheep from the goats. He shall set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on his left. Here you have the righteous and the unrighteous, those who are good and evil, the sheep and the goats, all appearing before the judgment seat of Christ on the very same day and separated at the very same time. And so there's a doctrine of general judgment in the Bible. Moreover, the Bible teaches us that the glorification of the saints, their being made like unto the Lord when he returns, their glorification will take place at the very same time will be coterminous with the judgment that comes upon those who have been persecuting the church. The judgment on the wicked on the final day will take place at the same time that the saints are being glorified. 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 6 to 10. If so be that it is a righteous thing with God to recompense affliction to them that afflict you, and to you that are afflicted, rest with us at the revelation, that is the coming, of the Lord Jesus from heaven with the angels of his power and flaming fire, rendering vengeance to them that know not God and to them that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus, who shall suffer punishment, even eternal destruction from the face of the Lord and from the glory of his might, when he shall come to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at in all them that believed because of our testimony unto you was believed in that day. In the day in which the saints are glorified and relieved of their afflictions, in that day those who were persecuting the church will suffer eternal damnation. So on the very same day there is going to be the glorification of the saints and the judgment of the wicked. 2 Thessalonians, chapter 1, verses 6 to 10. Okay, so we've seen that the Bible teaches that Christ returns after the millennium, not before the millennium, Revelation 20, verse 9. Secondly, we've seen that there is no gap or room uh, into which we can insert a 1,000-year reign of Christ because there will be a general resurrection of just and unjust, a general judgment of just and unjust, 
and the glorification of the saints and the judgment of the wicked at the very same time. Thirdly, I'd like to point out that there is no doctrine of the secret rapture to be found in the Bible as well. In 1 Thessalonians, the fourth chapter, verse 16, Paul says, For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in, the, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. When he speaks of the resurrection of the just, those who are dead in Christ, he says it's going to be the noisiest day in human history. There's no secret about this rapture. It's absolutely impossible to read this and think that there's going to be a secret rapture. If the Lord descending from heaven comes with a shout and with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, everybody's going to know what's taking place. So there's no secret about it. Moreover, in Matthew, the 13th chapter, you may be interested to note that those who are good are not separated out of those who are evil according to the eschatological plan of God, but rather those who are evil are separated out of those who are good. Matthew 13, let's look at verses 39 to 43. Jesus, in the midst of giving his parables, interprets one and says, And the enemy that sowed them is the devil, and the harvest is the end of the world, and the reapers are angels. As therefore the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be in the end of the world. The Son of Man shall send forth his angels, and they shall gather out of his kingdom all things that cause stumbling in them that do iniquity, and shall cast them into the furnace of fire. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then shall the righteous shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. And I'd like to say, let him who has ears hear this. Jesus will not send forth the angels to rapture his saints out of an evil world. Jesus will send forth the angels to remove that which is wicked from his kingdom, which is the world. And so you see, it's just the opposite of the rapture doctrine as presented by premillennialism in its dispensational form. The same thing is taught in Matthew, the 13th chapter, verses 49 and 50. So shall it be in the end of the world, the angels shall come forth and sever the wicked from among the righteous, and shall cast them into the furnace of fire. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's the wicked that are removed from the kingdom, rather than the righteous being removed from a kingdom of evil. And so dispensational premillennialism has matters reversed, and there's certainly no doctrine of a secret rapture to be found in the Bible. Fourthly, I'd like to point out, what I've said is that the coming of Jesus Christ is post-millennial. There is no room for the insertion of a thousand-year reign after his coming. There is no doctrine of a secret rapture. And now, fourthly, there is no doctrine of the imminent return of Jesus Christ to be found in the Bible. The doctrine of the imminent return teaches that Christ can come at any moment, that Christ can come right now. He might come tonight, he may come tomorrow, nobody knows for sure, but he can come at any time. And uh, I was brought up on that teaching in an all-millennial church, strangely enough. Many all-millennialists believe this too, but it's basically a dispensational premillennial doctrine that teaches that because of the clock of prophecy being put to an end, as long as the Jews are out of the promised land, nothing can be fulfilled by way of prophecy 
until after Christ returns and raptures his saints and the Jews return to the land of promise. And consequently, premillennialism has taught an imminent coming of Jesus Christ. However, in Matthew, the 25th chapter, the first 13 verses, Jesus tells us the parable of the wise and foolish virgins. And what was the mistake of the foolish virgins, according to Jesus' account? Precisely that they expected the imminent coming of the bridegroom. They thought the bridegroom would come, and so they spent their oil. They used it up. And then when the bridegroom finally did appear, they had to go about begging others for oil, and at that point they were condemned to outer darkness. These were foolish virgins to think the bridegroom would come immediately. Jesus tells us that parable to keep us from thinking that he might come at just any moment and expect and do our work with that kind of vision in mind. Moreover, Paul tells us in no uncertain terms in 2 Thessalonians, the second chapter, verses 1, 2, and 3, that we are not to expect an imminent coming of Jesus Christ. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. Now we beseech you, brothers, touching the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together unto him, to the end that you not be quickly shaken from your mind, nor yet troubled, either by spirit or by word or by epistle as from us, as that the day of the Lord is just at hand. Let no man beguile you in any wise, for it shall not be. Paul says, you should not be beguiled by anybody's teaching that the day of the Lord is right at hand. So Paul explicitly warns the church not to expect an imminent coming of Jesus Christ. Jesus warns the church against thinking that the bridegroom comes immediately. Now, you may be tempted to say at this point, but doesn't the Bible say that Jesus will return as a thief in the night? And as a thief in the night, nobody will know for sure when he comes. A thief comes unexpectedly, suddenly, surprisingly. And therefore, when the Bible says Jesus will return as a thief, that means he's going to come in a time when nobody expects him. Well, there's a mixture of truth and error in that. Jesus will come as a thief. But it's wrong to say that he will come when nobody expects him. In uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 2 to 5, Paul says, For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. When they are saying peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall in no wise escape. So Paul says, that's right, it's going to be sudden and a surprise, just like a thief in the night. But look at verse 4. But you, brothers, are not in darkness, that that day should overtake you as a thief, for you are all sons of the light and sons of the day. Paul says, that's right, Jesus will come as a thief in the night to the wicked, to those who don't believe he's going to ever return, to those who are living unrighteous lives. Jesus will come just like a thief in the night. But he says explicitly, you are not so ignorant so that when Jesus returns it will be like a thief in the night to you. You are sons of the day. You'll know what to expect. You know perfectly well that the Lord Jesus will come as a thief only upon the wicked. He won't come as a thief upon you. And so the Bible teaches that Jesus' coming will be a surprise to many people, but his people will know how to expect his coming because they will live in ever preparation for it. They will always be prepared for the coming of Jesus and not be overtaken as a thief. 
and they live in preparation knowing that there are signs of the times. That doesn't make them clock watchers. That doesn't make them people who can chart it, who can tell you the day and the hour, because of that day and hour knoweth no man, Jesus says, except his Father in heaven. What it does mean is that his people will always be prepared for it, and they will watch, and they will be able to discern, even as we watch the clouds in the sky and know that rain is coming or that it's afternoon or what have you, that his people will see the signs of the times and know the season in which he is to be returned. Anybody who believes there are signs of the times that have to be fulfilled before Jesus returns cannot believe in an imminent coming of Jesus until those signs have been, as a matter of fact, fulfilled. So, what I've said here very basically is that the Bible teaches not a premillennial return of Christ, but a postmillennial return right in the passage in which the millennium is described. The Bible does not teach that there is room for the insertion of a 1,000-year reign between the coming of Christ for his saints and the judgment of the wicked. There is no doctrine of a secret rapture in the Bible, but just the opposite. And finally, the Bible does not teach the imminent coming of Jesus Christ. Now, if I'm right on these four points, then premillennialism, be it dispensational premillennialism or historical premillennialism, premillennialism in general is impossible theologically. So now, let's shelve that. I don't believe that in our discussion this afternoon you're all that concerned about the premillennial temptation anyway. What I would like to do is talk about now amillennialism and postmillennialism, those things they hold in common and those things they, um, they differ, on which they differ. The amillennialists and the, and the postmillennialists now will agree that the millennium is after, I'm, excuse me, that the coming of Jesus Christ is after the millennium. That is to say, in one sense, both of these camps are post-millennial in orientation. In the chronology of the end-time events, they are post-mill. They all believe that after the church age, after the kingdom, after the millennium, Jesus returns. Secondly, they uh, both believed that the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Jesus Christ, was established at the first coming of Jesus Christ. Now, it's important to belabor this point because a number of all millennialists have tried to make out that their distinctive doctrine, the thing that they hold over against premillennialists and postmillennialists, is that they believe the millennium is being realized right now. Well, that is not the exclusive property or outlook or point of view of all millennialism. Historic post-millennialists have uh, said the same thing. I'll give you an example. If you would like to pick up the book Eschatology of Victory by Marcellus Kick, you will see that Kick dates the beginning of the millennium at the ascension of Jesus Christ. So he believes that the age between the first and second comings of Jesus Christ is the millennium. The only slight difference that you'll get is that historically there have also been some postmillennialists who said that while the kingdom of Christ was established at the first coming, the kingdom, quote-unquote, is established, the millennial phase of the kingdom is to be identified with the latter-day glory. And so they did not believe the millennium had begun in their own day, but they did believe that the kingdom of Christ had been established. And for my money, theologically, I see that nothing more but a quibble over words, frankly, because the crucial point is the realization of the coming of God's kingdom when Jesus was first on earth. Now, if you want to say the successful 
period of the kingdom we'll call the millennium. I think that doesn't quite square with scriptural terminology, but in terms of conceptual differences, there's not all that big a difference uh, in store here. So all mills and post mills both believe the kingdom was established at the first coming of Christ. In Matthew, the 12th chapter, verse 28, you recall how Jesus answers the charge of his opponents that he is um, casting out demons by the power of Beelzebub by saying, but if I, by the finger of God, cast out Satan, then is the kingdom of God among you. Jesus says that this is impossible to do with respect to the strong man unless the strong man is first bound. And if I, by the finger of God, cast out the strong man, Satan, then you know the kingdom of God is among you. Well, there you have a very easy syllogism. If A, then B. If I cast out Satan, then the kingdom of God is here. As a matter of fact, I'm casting out Satan. Ergo, therefore, the kingdom of God is here. So Jesus teaches the presence of the kingdom in the fact that he is destroying the works of Satan. Now in Revelation 20, verses 2 and 3, we are told that a mark of the millennium is that Satan is bound. Jesus, in his first advent, said, I have bound the strong man, and the kingdom of God is here. And so all mills and post mills believe the millennium has begun in the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ, more particularly in his redemptive death and resurrection, and then his ascension to the right hand of God to be the King of kings and Lord of lords and to rule over all creation. In Matthew 16, verse 28, I'll give you just a few other indications and we'll move on. In Matthew 16, 28, Jesus tells us that the kingdom of God can be dated from the lifetime of his hearers. Verily I say unto you, there are some of them that stand here who shall in no wise taste of death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Jesus says, there will be some of you who will not have died by the time the kingdom of God is established. I will come in my kingdom in your lifetime. Uh, nothing could be clearer to my own mind, although I do know the exegetical gymnastics that people go through to avoid that. But in plain speech, Jesus says, in your own lifetime, I will be the king. All right. In Acts 28, verses 30 to 31, we read the summary of the ministry of the Apostle Paul that he went about preaching the kingdom of God in all things concerning Jesus. Now, of course, you can interpret that to mean that Paul was teaching that the kingdom of God is yet future and that he was very absorbed, as so many uh, prophetic conferences are today, in futuristic things. But from what we know of the ministry of the Apostle Paul, his preaching of the kingdom of God and things concerning Jesus was very present tense oriented. He was preaching the need for the remission of sins through faith and by the grace of God. He was preaching that Jesus is the Messiah, that he had already come as the king. In Romans 14, verse 17, Paul tells us that the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but is rather righteousness and joy in the Holy Spirit. And so there's the implication that we are already enjoying the kingdom of God because we enjoy the righteousness and joy brought by the Holy Spirit. And so we could go on and on. The fact of the matter is that I believe as a post-millennialist, that the kingdom of Jesus Christ has now been established and he is the king 
over all the earth. Now, post-millennialists and all-millennialists also believe together that the church is the new Israel, the people of God. They both believe that, as Jesus said in the Gospel, the kingdom of God is taken away from the Jews and given to a nation, producing the fruit thereof. The kingdom of God was offered to the Jews, but they showed themselves unworthy of it. And God then, according to his eternal purpose, has intended for the Gentiles to be made part of the kingdom of God. Jesus has given the kingdom then to the Gentiles and has thrust it away from the Jews. Paul tells us in Romans, the second chapter, that a man is not a Jew who is circumcised outwardly, but a man is a Jew who is circumcised inwardly. Paul tells us in Galatians, the third chapter, that those who are heirs of the promise and the sons of Abraham are those who have faith, even as their father Abraham had faith. In Galatians, the sixth chapter, Paul gives his benediction upon the Israel of God. And we know very well from our study of Galatians in this conference, he's talking to a mainly Gentile church. And yet he calls this Gentile church the Israel of God. In Acts, the 15th chapter at the Jerusalem Council, when James refers to the coming of the apostles in, uh, excuse me, when James refers to the coming of the Gentiles into the church, he cites the prophecy of Joel that the booth of David will, would be rebuilt in the day of the Lord. And he sees in the coming in of the Gentiles the building up of God's house. And so the promise made to Israel is a promise fulfilled in the Gentile church. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and following, Peter describes the church as a kingdom of priests, using the very language of Exodus, the 19th chapter, that described originally Israel of old. The church, the Gentile church, is described as the new Israel. Moreover, Jeremiah 31 says that God will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and Judah, and Jesus, at the Last Supper, institutes in his church the Lord's Supper as the new covenant in his blood. So the new covenant that establishes the church is, in fact, the fulfillment of a promise made to Israel and to Judah. Consequently, I think there are many lines of evidence that show that the church today takes the place of Israel of old and the plan of God. The church is the chosen people of God, no longer ethnic Israel. Those who are Jews are Jews by faith, are the people of God and the sight of God because of their trust of the Savior. Uh, we can add fourthly that all millennialists and post-millennialists both believe that the millennium uh, spoken of in Revelation 20 is not a literal period of time of 1,000 years. The book of Revelation is not a book that can be very easily interpreted in a literal fashion. The next time somebody proposes to you that the 1,000 in Revelation is literal, ask them whether they believe the beast from the ocean is literal also. Ask them if they believe that the blood flowing to the horse's bridles to 1,600,000 stadia is literal. Ask them about a few other details of the book, and you'll find out very quickly they do not believe the book is a literal book. It is a figurative, symbolic, poetic book. And so there's no necessity to read that figure literally. We read it rather as a kind of idiom expressing the long, full period of time in which Jesus shall reign upon earth. 
Now, there are times in the Bible where if you interpret the Bible literally, even though you could interpret it literally without making nonsense of it, you would in fact teach just the opposite of what the Bible wants to be taught. Let me give you an example. The Bible says the Lord is faithful to his covenant to a thousand generations. If you interpret that literally, that means you can't count on the Lord to be faithful in generation 1001. And if you believe that, you're believing just the opposite of what the author's trying to say when he says the Lord is faithful to a thousand generations. He's trying to say you can always count on God. But if you believe that that's to be taken literally, then you have to believe that at some point you might not count on God. The Lord owns the cattle on a thousand hills, the psalmist says. Well, if you interpret that literally, then apparently the cattle on hill 1001 do not belong to the Lord. And so where the Bible wants to teach that God owns everything, you end up by interpreting it literally, the idiom, you uh, interpret it literally, and you believe that God doesn't own everything. So you see, you end up getting just the opposite of what the author wants to say. So the amillennialists and the postmillennialists do not take the 1,000 of Revelation literally. They believe it, st it stands for an undetermined uh, period of time, usually uh, interpreted as a long period of time, full, um, complete in the sense that all of the promises of God will be made right at that point. Well, we've put aside premillennialism and we've seen that the amill and the postmill both believe that the millennium is at, that the coming of Christ is after the millennium. Both are postmill chronologically. Both believe that the kingdom was established at the first coming of Christ. Both believe the church is the new Israel, the people of God. Both believe the 1,000 is to be interpreted figuratively and not literally. So what's the difference? Why is there a difference between all-mill and post-mill? The difference, very simply, is that the post-mill is confident and optimistic that the Great Commission will be fulfilled, that the nations of the world will be discipled, that Jesus Christ is now and shall be progressively subduing every enemy until there's a worldwide revival and that the effects of that revival will be felt throughout the various realms of culture, economics, politics, schooling, what have you. That the kingdom of God will come to have preeminence in the affairs of men so that Christianity is the rule rather than the exception to the rule in the affairs of men. Now again, the amillennialist goes a little way in that direction and then he says he will pray for that, he will hope for that, he will work for that. I myself find that most amillennialists are inconsistent in that matter. They talk that, they usually do not live that. And I think there's something just natural in the pessimism of one's eschatology that keeps him from doing very much in terms of reconstruction of all areas of life, very much in missionary endeavor when he doesn't have an optimistic outlook about these things. I do not believe for a moment that an amillennialist cannot be fervent in missions. I do not believe that he cannot engage in reconstruction. All I'm saying is as a general rule in my own experience, I have not found most amillennialists impelled in this direction. They do seem to live out their pessimism and a kind of indifferentism toward missions and an indifferentism toward social reconstruction according to the word of God. There's no logical reason why they have to because that, they believe that moral obligation is there in the Great Commission no matter what. But I do see a general pessimism um, in life. The difference then is not that the amillennialist can't pray for it and hope for it. It's that he does not believe the Bible confidently prophesies it. 
The post-millennialist believes that the Bible teaches that this is in fact what we can expect. Not just what we can hope for, but what we can confidently expect. That's the difference between the all-millennial and post-millennial position. And what I'd like to do in my remaining moments before I open up the floor for questions is to give you some indication in the Bible that this is precisely the point of view of the prophets and the apostles. That we may confidently expect that in this period between the first and second coming of Jesus Christ, the Great Commission will be fulfilled, and it's seen in two main things, widespread conversions, worldwide revival, and the cultural effects of that kind of thing. That is, the, the coming and reign of righteousness, or if you will, a semi-golden age in the affairs of men. All right, let's begin, first of all, by asking, what may we expect, what does Jesus Christ expect will take place during this period of time. In Hebrews, the 10th chapter, we get an answer to that question that I've posed. In Hebrews 10, at verse, let's read um, 12 through 13, the author says, But Christ, when he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God, henceforth expecting his enemies to be made the footstool of his feet. What is Christ expecting to take place during this inner advental period? That his enemies now will be made the footstool of his feet. He has done his prophetic work. He has come and declared the will of God on earth. He has done his priestly work. He has sat down on the right hand of God, having made one offering for sin, and now he will accomplish his kingly work, expecting all of his enemies to be subdued under his feet. Now, what is that referring to? How can the author of Hebrews just say that and go on to other matters? Why doesn't he say, what does that mean, expecting his enemies to be made the footstool of his feet? Well, the author of the book of Hebrews doesn't think he has to explain because the Old Testament had made it abundantly clear what was going to take place when God's chosen and anointed son would come. In Hebrews, excuse me, in um, Psalm 110, we read of the promise that the Messiah will have all the nations made the footstool of his feet. Psalm 110, I'd like to read the first three verses. <coughs> Jehovah saith unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. The image here is that uh, from the ancient world where a conquering king would have the kings that he has conquered, his enemies, come and bow down before him with their foreheads to the ground, and then he would put his foot upon their neck. Okay? And that is playing out, you see, sim symbolizing their utter subjection to him, that they have become the hassock of his feet. He puts his foot upon their neck to show that they are so subservient that he can use them, you see, as a footstool. Jesus is now expecting every enemy to be made the footstool of his feet. Jehovah will send forth the rod of thy strength out of Zion. Rule thou in the midst of thine enemies. Thy people offer themselves willingly in the day of thy power and holy array out of the womb of the morning. The day is coming, the psalmist says, in which God's chosen one, the Lord at, the, at God's right hand, will make every enemy the footstool of his feet. In Psalm 72, 
we have a further explication of this day in which the enemies of the Lord are made the footstool of his feet. There we read, Give the king thy judgments, O God, and thy righteousness unto the king's son. He will judge thy people with righteousness and thy poor with justice. The mountain shall bring peace to the people and, in, and the hills in righteousness. He will judge the poor of the people. He will save the children of the needy and will break in pieces the oppressor. They shall fear thee while the sun endureth and so long as the moon throughout all generations. He will come down like rain upon the mown grass and showers that water the earth. In his days shall the righteous flourish in abundance of peace till the moon be no more. He shall have dominion also from sea to sea and from the river unto the ends of the earth. They that dwell in the wilderness shall bow before him, and his enemies shall lick the dust. The kings of Tarshish and of the Isles shall render tribute. The kings of Sheba and Seba shall offer gifts. Yea, all kings shall bow down before him. All nations shall serve him. Psalm 67. God be merciful unto us and bless us and cause his face to shine upon us that thy way may be known upon earth, thy salvation among all nations. Let the peoples praise thee, O God, let all the peoples praise thee. O let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for thou wilt judge the peoples with equity and govern the nations upon earth. Let the peoples praise thee, O God, let all the peoples praise thee. The earth hath yielded its increase. God, even our own God, will bless us. God will bless us, and all the ends of the earth shall fear him. Psalm 22, verse 27. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn unto Jehovah, and all the kindreds of the nations shall worship before thee. The day is coming when Christ will subdue every enemy under his feet and all his enemies shall lick the dust and all kings shall serve him and all nations will offer to him tribute and all nations will be converted to him and all the people shall worship him. In Malachi, the first chapter, Malachi had promised, well, let's read it for ourselves. Verse 11, For from the rising of the sun even unto the going down of the same, my name shall be great among the Gentiles, and in every place incense shall be offered into my name, and a pure offering, for my name shall be great among the Gentiles, saith Jehovah of hosts. From the rising of the sun to the setting of the sun, all of it will be the kingdom of God, and a pure offering will be offered to him. And in that day, says Zechariah, there will be holiness upon the Lord, written upon the bells of the horses, and upon every common cooking pot in Jerusalem. And in that day, every area of life will be consecrated to God, from horses to cooking. And there'll be no difference between the temple items and vessels. I mean, no difference between the consecrated items in the temple and what every woman uses in her kitchen, because everything will be consecrated to God in that day. Now, in 1 Corinthians, the 15th chapter, Paul himself tells us that this subduing of every enemy, every area of life, and every one who is, uh, every nation that is offering opposition to the gospel, that this will take place progressively as Jesus is making every enemy the footstool of his feet. 
We read in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 23, but each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then they that are Christ at his coming. Our resurrection will be at the coming of Jesus Christ, and then will come the end when he shall deliver up the kingdom to God, even the Father. Then comes the end, you see. There's no development for the kingdom after Christ returns. Then comes the end. Then he delivers up the consummated kingdom. Then he has accomplished everything the Father has given him to do. Now this refutes not only premillennialism that says the kingdom of Christ develops after his return, but it refutes all millennialists when they say, well, these promises we've been reading in the Old Testament, they'll all be fulfilled after Jesus comes. They'll be fulfilled in the new heavens and the new earth in the eternal state. But this says that the kingdom will be delivered, consummated and complete to the Father. Then comes the end when we are raised from the dead and he comes back. When he shall have abolished all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign till he hath put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be abolished is death. Stop and think about that. As Warfield points out, this is an irrefutable logical argument of the Apostle Paul that the last enemy, death, will be defeated when we show that death has no power over us, when we are raised from the dead. And when we are raised from the dead, that will be at the coming of Jesus Christ, and that will mark the end of human history and the consummation of the kingdom. So the last enemy to be defeated will be defeated at our resurrection, which is the coming of Jesus Christ. And that is the last enemy to be defeated. And Paul says during this age, he must reign till he has put all his enemies under his feet. That means every other enemy of Jesus Christ, all the nations opposed to the gospel, all areas of life that are opposing the righteousness of God's kingdom, must be defeated and subdued prior to the last enemy's defeat and subjection, and that will take place at the end of history. So the post-millennialist says that this teaches the golden or semi-golden age of the millennium taking place progressively as Jesus is ruling and subduing all things to himself. Now the Old Testament had promised that this would take place progressively. We know that according to the prophecy of Daniel in the second chapter where he interprets the image that Nebuchadnezzar saw in a dream, that there will be a stone cut without hands that destroys the world empires, and that stone will grow and grow and grow until it becomes a great mountain filling the earth. Isaiah, the second chapter, tells us that all the nations will flow into the mountain of Jehovah's house. Let's read Isaiah 2, verses 2 to 4. And it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of Jehovah's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills, and all nations shall flow into it. And many people shall go and say, Come ye, and let us go up to the mountain of Jehovah, to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us of his ways, and we will walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of Jehovah from Jerusalem. And he will judge between the nations and will decide concerning many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. The mountain of the kingdom of God is going to grow and fill the earth.